The following is offered by Discerning Hearts, a 501c3 nonprofit Catholic apostolate dedicated to spiritual formation through the use of new media. To download this selection, or to browse hundreds of other programs, or to contribute to our mission with a charitable donation which is fully tax-deductible, visit our website at discerninghearts.com. Ignatius Press and the Augustine Institute present The Formed Book Club. Catholic book lovers unpacking good books chapter by chapter. If you like us, please help us by subscribing and by reviewing us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you might listen. And don't forget to sign up for weekly updates and study questions at formedbookclub.ignatius.com. Here we are at the Form Book Club. We are continuing our discussion of in defense of sanity. Certainly that is a defense these days. The best essays of G.K. Chesterton. We are going to jump right into uh, the essay on gargoyles. And I believe... Joseph, that you had uh, some things immediately you want to comment on in this uh, chapter? Yes, I, I love this particular essay. I know you also said you wanted to comment on it, but if you're going to let me go first, then uh, then that's fine. Um, the opening um, the opening paragraph, um, if I can read it, because the prose is beautiful. Um, Alone at some distance from the wasting walls of a disused abbey, I found half sunken in the grass the grey and goggle-eyed visage of one of those graven monsters that made the ornamental water spouts in the cathedrals of the Middle Ages. It lay there, scoured by ancient rains or striped with recent fungus, but still looking like the head of some huge dragon slain by a primeval hero. And as I looked at it, I thought of the, the meaning of the grotesque and passed into some symbolic reverie of the three great stages of art. And what follows is a, is, is a history of art in its really succinct, brilliant way. But uh, I wanted to comment actually on the grotesque and on gargoyles. Um, this is something that's very much uh, a central aspect or facet of, of Chesterton's approach to things, seeing somehow the presence of God in um, the grotesque. And, um, you know, you think of some of his best-known poems, The Donkey, you know, The Walking's Devil, pa- the, 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 walking, the Devil's Walking Parody of All Four-Footed Things. And then there's a, not, one of my favorite is The Fish, when he looking down at the fish in the water and he talks about the finny goblin in the abyss untrod because obviously we can't tread on water unless we're jesus um but the finny goblin and then the skeleton you know you know chuckle spread from ear to ear laughing everlastingly there's something about this in chesterton and he's obviously at home here in the ruins of an abbey with the with the gargoyles and the grotesque and then I'm just going to very quickly summarize one and let you go through it. But there's three parts. He sees three stages to the history of art, really the history of civilization. Uh, the first, the purity of reason, the pagan age. They worship the sun, not idolatrously, but as the golden crown of God, whom all such infants see almost as plainly as the sun. And then from the exaltation of the humble, which is uh, you know why, we, why there were so many gargoyles, is because everything's God's creation, including the ugliness. I mean, again, I love him in The Man Who Is Thursday when he talks about God telling jokes with creation. He says, look, look, for instance, at the hornbill, which is just a tiny bird, with, the, you know, with, the, with the, which is just a huge beak with a tiny bird stuck on the back. So, you know, this exaltation of the humble, which was the spirit of Christendom, and then that 
degenerates into the third modern era, which is basically pride and chaos. And so um, I'm going to pass over to you now, Father. Vivian, uh, do you want to say anything to that? You don't have to. Um, no, Father, why don't you go first? I know you want to. Well, no, I, it, I mean, but as you were speaking, Joseph, it made me think of Flannery O'Connor, who probably is the author of Gargoyles, you know, in terms of modern Catholic writing. Uh, Absolutely. And, you know, often people are turned off by the grotesque, which they find in her. But uh, she, to me, is a parallel to Bernanos, who ends up his Diary of the Country Reached by saying, tout est grâce, everything is grace, you know, even the ugly, you know, that that gives some of us hope, especially as we get older and the wrinkles begin to multiply. Well, Father, I think, oh, were you you looking for a quote there? No, I'm going to get, I'm going to get to one, yeah. Yes, keep going then, please. Well, I mean, I wanted to, uh, because this also kind of, is a revelatory of Chesed himself, but on page 110, he's kind of summarizing here the three stages of art that he sees. You know, at the new paragraph at the bottom, the old Greeks summoned godlike things to worship their god. So they took beauty and form and, you know, luminosity and so on. The medieval Christians summoned all things to worship theirs, Dwarfs and pelicans, monkeys and madmen. So that's the second stage of art. The modern realists summon all these million creatures to worship their god and then have no god for them to worship. Now he summarizes again. Paganism was in art a pure beauty. That was the dawn. Christianity was a beauty created by controlling a million monsters of ugliness. And that, in my opinion, belief was a zenith in the noon. Modern art and science practically mean having the million monsters and being unable to control them. And I will venture to call that the disruption and the decay. So uh, what is he a reactionary, a conservative? Uh, how do you label him? As Chesterton, I mean, as Lewis used to say, he thought he was the last medieval man, you know, because he didn't like unrhymed, unmetered uh, poetry. And he also said, Lewis also said that Chesterton has more common sense than all the moderns put together except their, uh, except his Christianity. That's before uh, Lewis converted. And here, I think we see an example of it. This is Chesterton showing he has more common sense than all the moderns put together in succinct brilliance, putting the whole history of art and civilization in the proverbial nutshell. I think it's marvelous. Well, uh, I would like to contradict Chesterton Uh. in order to illuminate something that I think he's really saying. And that is in that last section you quoted, Father, about the Greeks summoning godlike things to worship their God, Christians summoning all things to worship theirs, uh, the moderns summoning these things to worship their God and then having no God, and then going on, Christianity was a beauty created by controlling the monsters and modern art and science having the monsters and being unable to control them. And I, where I want to contradict Chesterton here, not because I think he's wrong at all, 
But to illuminate something, I think that actually it's the modern mind that wants to control. And through science and reason and all these things, and that in trying to control things, makes himself and his technology the God that he wants to be worshipped. And that Christianity, I don't see Christianity as so much a controlling force in the world as a redeeming force in the world. In other words, the very reason we can accept the grotesque, the ugly, the defective, the imperfect. And I love Chesterton for loving all these things. The very reason we can love them is because we know God loves them and that in his plan to glorify all these things, there's a redemptive work going on in the world. And therefore, we don't have to cast off the sick and the old and the infirm and the weak and all these things. We can see in them the love and beauty that God is doing in them and doing in us. And that, I don't see that. I mean, he uses this word control, but I actually see control as something more of the modern mindset. Mm. Yeah, I think, I think, I think, Vivian, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm agreeing with you, and agreeing with your disagreement with Chester, and agreeing with Chesterton. No. Uh, <laughs> but, um, I, I, I think that there are two types of um, modernity here, and you're you're concentrating on one aspect of it, which is scientism, which does want to control and systemize, um, uh, etc. But I think what Chesterton's talking about here is that other type of modernity, which has become post-modernity, deconstruction nihilism so if you like philosophical modernity rather than scientific modernity and i think it's that decay uh where they've lost control of everything including meaning itself that he's referring to here he's not, and and i think that there are if you like there's this confident scientific rational modernity and there's this very irrational anti-rational nihilistic modernity and i think it's the latter to which he's primarily referring here well, also i think it's oh, go ahead when Oh, I'm sorry, Father. No, go ahead. Go ahead. It's perhaps then, uh, Joseph, that this use of his of the word controlling is where my problem lies, that when he says that Christianity controlled the monsters, perhaps he means that by ordering reality. Exactly. That's what I was going to say, that not control, but seeing an order and seeing a relationship and a harmony, but not not trying to dominate it. Yes. Right. Okay. So that was, wasn't that fun? <laughs> it was. You've got some coherence in the end, in, in, in the midst of the paradox, which is the idea, isn't it? Um, before, if we are thinking of moving on, Father, can I just read immediately where you left off? I just think it's beautiful analogous prose. If could we finish that as a way of concluding this essay, if you're not, if you have nothing else to say, or do you No, I want to quote the whole last paragraph, but go ahead. Oh, okay, well, I'm going to quote the two sentences before the last paragraph. Okay. Because I just think it's beautiful. Uh, the finest length of the Elgin marbles consists of splendid horses going to the temple of a virgin. Christianity, with its gargoyles and grotesques, really amounted to saying this, that, that a donkey could go before all the horses of the world when it was really going to the temple. Romance means a holy donkey going to the temple. Realism means a lost donkey going nowhere. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, that's good. Well, then, let me let me jump to the fo the following and conclusive paragraph here, because I think it it really is Chesterton describing himself in terms of this three stages of art. 
the fragments of futile journalism or fleeting impression, which are here collected because this is an essay, it's about his collected essays and so on, are very like the wrecks and ribbon blocks that were piled in a heap around my imaginary priest of the sun. They're very like that gray and gaping head of stone that I found overgrown with the grass. He's referring to his own essays now. Yet I will venture to make even of these trivial fragments the high boast that I am a medievalist and not a modern. That is, I really have a notion of why I have collected all the nonsensical things there are. I have not the patience nor perhaps the constructive intelligence to state the connecting link between all these chaotic papers. But that's where the order comes in, Vivian. But it, it could be stated, this row of shapeless and ungainly monsters, which I now set before the reader, that is his essays, does not consist of separate idols cut out capriciously in lonely valleys or various islands. These monsters are meant for the gargoyles of a definite cathedral. I have to carve the gargoyles because I can carve nothing else. I leave to others the angels and arches and the spires, but I am very sure of the style of the architecture and of the construction of the church. I mean, I mean, it, it's a little too modest, it seems to me, but nevertheless, it, 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 it's a, an apologia for his essays, which take cheese and chasing after your hat and, and gargoyles, uh, and, write, and he writes about them sort of fragmentarily, but there is an overall overarching architecture to which they belong. That's right. That goes back to Thomas Howard's Chancellor of the Dance, right? The reason why Chesterton can have confidence in, in carving gargoyles is because he has the conviction that somehow all these things fit together in some kind of harmony that makes sense, even if we can't make sense out of it precisely and perfectly ourselves. There's a confidence that I don't have to understand it all in order for me to trust that it all goes together and that it's all beautiful because it's been created by a good God. And so that faith is what gives him confidence. But Father, you know, the modesty about his writing, I think it also, I hate to psychologize here, but you kind of read between the lines, you know, his defense of the poor, um, in spite of their being dirty and uh, unhygienic and slovenly or whatever it is, his defense of um, food and drink and smoke and all these things, you know, he's, I think he is very keenly aware of his own human foibles and those of his fellow man. And instead of that being a source for him of contempt, which when he's uh, browbeating the modders, they want to clean everybody up, you know? They, they, they want to sanitize everything and cure everything and put everything into this pristine condition to please themselves, by the way, their own idea of perfection. That's the real idolatry. The only thing I would, I would say is an, an, an addition to that, not a contradiction, is that I think that Chesterton, when Chesterton says, I'm, I'm just a jolly journalist, he means it. In other words, that, you know, he does everything in, in a great hurry. 
uh, for money because that's the only way he's earning a living. <laughs> and I, you know, I, don't, I, don't blame, I don't blame him for that. And if you look at his art, I mean, it's brilliant, but it's all done very quickly. You're never going to see, you know, a realist painting uh, like the Mona Lisa done by Chesterton because I don't much he doesn't have the patience. He, I, don't, I don't think he has the time. And I also does, probably doesn't have the gift. And I think he knows it. And, and I think that, you know, that there's, there's, there's a genuine humility here that he, he is like God's juggler, you know, the jongler de Dieu. He's going to give to God what he can give. You know, the humble gifts he can give. He's not, he's not going to write the divine comedy, right? Um, he's not going to write War and Peace, but he'll write novels that are not they're written in a hurry. <laughs> you know, uh, well, yeah, yes, but way, these you know. essays are all more than a hundred years old. What other essays that were well crafted, carefully prepared, finely honed, and so on, are you aware of that still are read? You know, agreed. And, and the, the art, of, but the art of the essay is something that you, you you can write and finish quickly. I mean, it doesn't mean it's not brilliant. And I think as an essayist, he's arguably the finest. But um, it, it, it it's a mode of literature. It doesn't require a hundred a uh, hundred canti written in terzarima, right? Um, it, it, it's something that he wrote in an hour and a half because he had a deadline to meet. Yes, but uh, here's an genius. anecdote which I know is true. I, I heard this from a, an eyewitness, all right, that uh, the, one of the two great Thomistic philosophers of the 20th century was Etienne Gilson. He was up in Toronto at St. Michael's College with a group of graduate students. And around in, it was in the late 20s, early 30s, it was rumored that G.K. Chesson was writing a book on Thomas Aquinas. And so they're all waiting for this to come out. And uh, it finally arrived, and they gave the copy to Etienne Gilson. He took it home. And the next day, they're wondering, what's he going to say? And Etienne Gilson, who was one of the two great commentators on Aquinas of the 20th century, took the book, threw it across the classroom, in, in, you know, and he said, I've been writing on Thomas Aquinas for my higher, my entire scholarly life. This is the book I wish I could have written. I mean, it was just, you know, he was he was blown away by the fact that, because what, what Chesney could do, like in his Everlasting Man, he doesn't need, need to know all of history. He just needs to know how to pick out the outline, how to, pick, how to emphasize the salient points and leave the other points back in the background. So he did have a tremendous gift. I I agree. I agree completely. But, you know, again, that same story to, of his uh, running the book of Thomas Aquinas, you know, his, his secretary, Francis Collins, is it Collins? Uh, oh, God help me now. Anyway, his secretary uh, said that she, <laughs> Chesson asked her to buy all the books on the Thomas Aquinas that he should get and take everything from the library. And she had this huge pile of 25 books and Chesson spent about half an hour browsing through a half a dozen of them, put it at one side and never referred to any of them. Before out of the whole book, so yeah, it's, it's Chesterton's genius that makes the book the work of genius that it is. But it's not a work of particular scholarship, right? It's, right. Again, it's, it's, it's the same thing. It's done, it's done quickly, with spontaneity, and with brilliance. But it's not thoroughgoing. We'll return to the Foreign Book Club with Father Joseph Fezio, Vivian Dudrow, and Joseph Pierce in just a moment. Did you know that Discerning Hearts has a free app in which you can find all your favorite Discerning Hearts programming? 
Father Timothy Gallagher, Dr. Anthony Lillis, Deacon James Keating, Mike Aquilina, Dr. Matthew Bunsen, and so many more are found on the Discerning Hearts free app. Did you also know that you can stream Discerning Hearts programming on numerous streaming platforms such as Apple Podcasts, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Pandora, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, and so many more. And did you know that Discerning Hearts also has the YouTube page? Be sure to check out all these different places where you can find Discerning Hearts. Take, Lord, and receive all my liberty, my memory, my understanding, and my entire will, all that I have and call my own. You have given all to me. To you, Lord, I return it. Everything is yours. Do with it what you will. Give me only your love and your grace. That is enough for me. Amen. Hello, my name is Deacon Omar Gutierrez, and I want to ask you to support Discerning Hearts in a special way. We, Chris McGregor, the board, and I all know that not everyone listening can help financially. We know we have listeners from all parts of the world, and we have made a commitment since the beginning to make the truths shared through Discerning Hearts totally free. So while you may not be able to contribute financially, what you can do is certainly pray, but also give us positive reviews on whatever platform you use to listen to us. If it's iTunes, Android, Stitcher, Spotify, however it is that you get these podcasts, or if you're on YouTube and you like our videos, please give us a good rating and write a review. The more good ratings and reviews we get, the higher our profile, and the more listeners will discover us, listeners who may have the means to contribute in the future. Please consider rating us and writing a positive review today. We now return to The Formed Book Club with Father Joseph Fezio, Vivian Dudrow, and Joseph Pierce. So this is a wonderful essay on gargoyles. I think it tells us a lot about art, about medieval Christianity, and Christianity to court, as they say, in itself, and about Chesterton himself. We now proceed to the next essay of the, the fading fireworks to which I affixed the little epigram over the top. So, if anyone wants to discuss this essay, I'm happy to listen. Uh, I'm, ha- I'm, 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 I'm going to defer to, to Vivian in the first instance, but I just want to read the last few sen- sentences and to just say a very brief thing about Gun- Gryfwalk Snipe, which is what it's about. Okay. But go Vivian, ahead. Please. No, okay. you go I mean, ahead. Well, the key thing is, of course, that he's, ta- he's talking about Guy Fawkes Night, a bonfire night in England, which is the nearest the, the, the British get to um, to the 4th of July. I mean, that's how fireworks night. The only time in England you have fire, except for New Year's Eve, the only time in England you have fireworks is, is, is the 5th of November. And it's to celebrate the burning of a papist, the burning of a Catholic. Now, in, back in 19, early 1980s, it might have been 1980, they're in Lewis in Sussex, and I think they still do it to this day, every year they burn not just Guy Fawkes, but a huge bonfire, two huge bonfires side by side. On one they burn the Pope, by which I mean not the Pope in abstract, but the latest Pope. So they actually had an effigy of uh, St. John Paul II on top of the bonfire. And, and a bonfire next to it had whoever's unpopular that year. So the top of the bonfire next to it was Ronald Reagan. 
and they burned John Paul II and Ronald Reagan. And in those days, my mad, wild 19-year-old, I, I was happy with both of those burnings. But it's that barbarism that Chesterton's speaking about here, and he's talking about Protestantism as being something just transient like a firework. And I think that the real key to it is when he, when he makes this comparison between the, 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 the transience of the firework that begins in darkness, explodes and ends in darkness with the stained glass window where, where the, the permanent light of the sun comes through and illum illumines the saints. And that is the analogy of the church. So can I read the last couple of sentences from this essay? Sure. So page 114 for those following. The Christian windows are solid and human, made of heavy lead, of hearty and characteristic colors. But behind them is the light. The colors of the fireworks are as festive and as varied, but behind them is the darkness. They themselves are their only illumination, even as in their, that, their, that stern philosophy, man is his own star. The rockets of ruby and sapphire fade away slowly upon the dome of hollowness and darkness. But the kings and saints in the old Gothic windows, dusky and opaque in this hour of midnight, still contain all their power of full flamboyance and await the rising of the sun. I mean, I agree with you. I don't think it's a great essay, but that, 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 that climax to it, I think, is, is beautiful. Well, correct me if I'm wrong, Joseph, but... You know, when he says here, it seems to me that he's saying it's sad to see the passing. Uh, he says on 112, um, uh, you know, it's sad. It is as sad as the last oracle, this passing of the custom of burning things on Guy Fox. For with it passes the great positive Protestant faith, which was for three centuries the real religion of England, the burning of that image has been as central and popular as the Jubilee procession, as serious as the funeral of the king. Now, we, we have to remember that Chesterton became an Orthodox Christian pretty long before he became a Roman Catholic, right? And so I don't know, you know, you know his biography much better than I do, but how many years between this essay and his entrance into the Catholic Church. Well, this was written 12 years before his reception to the Catholic Church, but two years after the, uh, the writing of Orthodoxy. So, uh, you know, he's, he's, a, he's, a, he's a de facto Catholic at this point, if not de jure. So, but, but, um, but de facto Catholics, there are a lot of Anglicans, uh, high church Anglicans, and even American Episcopalians who um, consider themselves Catholic with a small c, and and uh, would be completely in agreement with Chesterton on orthodoxy, his book Orthodoxy, and probably most of all his other books too. I mean, there there is, I think, in English, in certain English Protestant circles that I'm familiar with, a Catholic with a small C. And whatever their uh, hesitation is about swimming the Tiber, you know, there's all kinds of reasons for this historical, cultural, and so on, which a little off point is one th reason why I'm so delighted that, that, that Rome has allowed for an Anglican rite in the Roman Catholic church. Uh, but, but in any case, I mean, that, that we are seeing the Orthodox Christian Catholic, uh, Orthodox Christian Chesterton 
but not yet Roman Catholic Chesterton in this essay. I, I, I disagree. I think that ending shows perfectly clearly that, that, that the Anglicanism was like the firework that would have its day and, and, and behind it was not the substance of, of reality. Um, I, think he, I think he regrets the passing of tradition. I mean, I remember when I was growing up, they had Guy Fawkes masks you would buy and it, we all went round the penny for the guy. You basically stuffed old clothes with with you know rags and and you had the guy and you stood stood outside the uh the shop and asked for penny for the guy and, and adults would give you money for your guy you had money for sweets you know for candy you know that was part of my growing up and i think that chesterton has a um a, a health, healthy wistfulness for the passing away of something which is tradition but he's but he's then saying at the end of the essay that the reason it's passing away is that behind the tradition and all the brightness of the tradition is nothing but darkness. There's no substance but, behind but it. I'm sorry. I, I have to disagree with you here because that paragraph where he's setting up the contrast between the stained glass windows and the fireworks, the contrast is not between small C Catholic Anglicanism, but between small C Orthodox Christianity and Confucianism. That that paragraph, he's setting up a different contrast, but that that's how I'm reading it anyway. Well, I mean, obviously the essay is not about Confucianism; uh, it's about Guy Fawkes now, which is not. No, I'm just what this paragraph he, is about. He put Confucianism in as a is typical Chesterton tangent because fireworks come from China, right? So, so he's introduced Confucianism in as a way of you know saying that like the fireworks they come from they don't they, they come from this culture which is not part of Christendom um and you know by analogy you know the fireworks on Guy Fawkes night that really ultimately the Protestant Reformation which gave birth in the Anglican Church is not part of Christendom I disagree but that's all right I mean I disagree that that's what he's saying here but you could be right and I could be wrong you know Chesterton better than I do I, I, I'm always happy to agree to differ. So that's, I will, that's, that, that's good. And I will, you know, I am not competent to adjudicate this, uh, this, this you know, but I will say uh, at the very least that an essay, which I thought was over the top in some senses did contain that gem. If you just read those last sentences, which you did, uh, Joseph, they are very beautiful and powerful sentences, you know. Whether it's Confucianism or Anglicanism versus Orthodoxy and Christianity, you know, I can't say. But well, let's go on to the next essay, The Furrows. And this was also, you know, was short and to me not one of the greatest. It's okay. Yeah, I guess I can. I just have one comment to make, but I'll, I'll defer to Vivian because I believe I've, I think we're speaking more than she has this uh, this uh, time. So if Vivian wants to speak on this, I'll make way. But I do have just want just I want to read a couple of sentences and comment upon them. That's all I want to say in this essay. Fine. What page? Uh, this would be 117, uh, about the middle of the page or the middle of the text that's there, um, and it's it is not only nonsense but blasphemy to say that man has spoiled the country. Man has created the country. It was his business as the image of God. No hill covered with common scrub or patches of purple heath could have been so sublimely hilly as that ridge up to which the rank furrows rose like aspiring angels. And the only thing I want to 
I'm not disagreeing with Chesterton because he's talking about agrarianism and agrarian culture and the plowing of fields. And I agree completely that we are meant to um, to be stewards of Mother Earth in that way. But, you know, this, this leaves out, if you like, the, uh, the elephant in the room, the dark satanic mills, right? Industrialism, uh, you know, and, and um, you know, I think that the, the, uh, the line from Hopkins's poem, nor can foot feel being shod. In other words, that we, we, know, we now have so many artificial accretions around us, we can't actually feel nature anymore because we separate ourselves from it. So I agree with this essay, but only insofar as you're talking about agrarianism and not insofar as you're talking about, you know, we have a right to, to pollute the planet through industrialism and everything else. And that's a whole different issue. I have something to say, but I will defer to you, Vivian, if you want to comment first. Uh, well, I like this other theme that he has woven into here, too. Just a couple of lines, like 116. In everything that bows gracefully, there must have been an effort at stiffness. And uh, later on that page, try to grow straight and life will bend you. There, there, there's something um, very beautiful here about uh, his understanding that... Um, Given this responsibility to till the earth and keep it right, we don't do that as straight and 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 rigid and as we would like, you know that. And so he sees that movement. The other thing that really um, stood out to me was the very last line: "The republic is founded on the plow." And you know that's very interesting that our founders uh, said exactly the same thing because it was all built on the small, I mean, there were of course the big plantations in the South, but most everybody else making up the colonies in that time were small landholders and small farmers. And they all saw that that was really key to making this kind of system of government work. I would say Vivian, that it's still true. The Republic is found on the plow because if, if, if by the plow we mean food production, Ultimately, it doesn't matter what else we have, how high tech we are. If, we, if we're not producing food, we're going to starve. So that's, that's, still, right. it's, that's still the baseline. It's still ground zero. The Republic is based upon that. It's founded on the plow. Well, can't they make pills for all that, Joseph? I mean, <laughs> injections? <laughs> I want to give a little personal experience here, several of them, but put together here. Ignatius Press is blessed to have a retreat house up north of here, uh, in a very rural area, uh, we built the house ourselves. So we, we designed it, had it built with the front deck, with the back deck. Not, there's a dispute about which is front and back of this house. But anyway, it looks out onto the hills, and I wanted nothing in the way. I just wanted to see the trees and the meadow, and, you know, and the brush and everything. No, everything, just nature. Uh, but for whatever reason... I think we have, because of the sun shining there, it faces southwest, we, we, we put some little uh, wooden posts in there, columns, and had like a pergola-type deal. And it, it framed the nature in something which we built. And it actually, in the frame, it, it, it took on, a, to me, a, a more attractive face. But then, about 10 years ago, I decided I want to plant some vines. And so I want to keep the center part of it clear so we can look down and see the mountains. But on both sides, left and right, I planted vines. And I must say, to me, it's much more pleasing now to look out from this deck and see God's beautiful nature and then 
viticulture there, you know, the vines growing. And that's one idea. Also, I remember driving through uh, France and Italy especially, you'd, you'd see the countryside uh, and you'd see these rolling hills and, and everything. And then you'd see a little village and all the rock, which the stone, which is used for these houses, but obviously hewn from the nearby, you know, quarries and ground. And so these little villages uh, seemed like part of the landscape. They didn't destroy the landscape. They, they, you know, it wasn't red and pink and chartreuse much like you might see in downtown San Francisco. It was it was part of the countryside. And then as you drive through France, I called it a little garden with a Michelin map and these little tiny roads that, that, that crisscross the, the countryside. You know, you see beautiful hedges and, and then fields and vines. And it's glorious to see how man can take nature and not really destroy it, but enhance it. And it yeah, was that way, Joseph, from flying into Heathrow, I always have a window seat and I'm coming down there. And before you get to Heathrow, all you see these these hedgerows and this green and everything, all patchwork. It's glorious. You know, once you get to Heathrow, it's a disaster. But I mean, on the way <laughs> in, it's beautiful. Yeah, I was. Uh, you know, that's why if you get to Heathrow, you head west out, not towards London, which is east. Um, but yeah, I mean, I was going to say exactly the same thing, Father. Basically, I feel exactly what you feel about France when I find myself flying back to England, looking down from the plane, seeing the patchwork quilt of man's living in harmony with nature then that's exactly what we're supposed to be doing with creation. So, so I mean, Father, that's been 35 minutes. It's up to you. I think that's good. I mean, uh, we're, this is fun. We're, we may, <laughs> <laughs> this is the everlasting book. Uh, <laughs> but so next week we'll start with uh, essay 25, the meaning of dreams and be prepared all the way to 34, the drift from domesticity. But I doubt we're going to get that far because there's another couple of essays coming up, which, again, are so full of wisdom. All right. God bless you all. See you next week at the Formed Book Club. If you enjoyed this discussion, please help spread the word about the Formed Book Club by subscribing to the podcast and writing a review. You can sign up for weekly updates at formedbookclub.ignatius.com.